this year I was really taken back at actually the era that I grew up in and the fact that women were speaking up now, that men were speaking up now, that in this era there was so much abuse, there was so many things that was happening to people that they had to keep quiet and my motivation came from looking at my two nieces and thinking I don't want them to have to keep quiet and my motivation come from the fact that I had to fight to regain the custody of my son that should have never left my care why should I stop you know why should I be the one to be silenced you know how can I work with my patients and and tell them to speak their truth and not speak mine that was Charmaine Harris and welcome back to another edition of the Harris Health and Mind podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Harris Health and Mind podcast. I've got my sister Charmaine Harris with me today. Um, we're going to be discussing her event she put on regarding um, trauma-informed um, and gender Thank you for coming on, Sham. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Um, yeah, I just want to get get straight into it, really, um, and just ask a few questions. First off, um, why did you decide to organise a social trial or conference? Uh, there was a couple of reasons, really, uh, but there was uh, one main motivation, and that was uh, primarily to do with... Well, I guess there was two motivations, one being to do with a friend who I'd lost last year who had a major background, uh, passion and love to to try to do more um, about raising awareness for uh, trauma-informed um, histories and, and people with trauma-informed backgrounds. Brilliant. Um, and, and what was it about her um, that you admired specifically? There, there was, there was so much, many things that I admired about her. I guess one of the major things that I admired about her was her genuineness. There was a, uh, she was very authentic. She spoke very much from the heart, um, and she was, you know, she, she was very real and very honest about what she saw. She came from someone who trained to work in the NHS because of her own lived experiences and her own uh, trauma history experiences. Uh, and whenever she could, she'd try to share those experiences with others to help others. Mm. We have a, cl- a clip of um, the conference she did um, that you've chosen to share a snippet on this podcast. Is that right to listen in? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So we'll play this clip just now. We have already faced the biggest change in mental health provision 30 years ago when we shut a lot of the big institutions. And then we had the public against us saying we was all going to get slain in our bed and we can't have these people walking the street. Hey ho, we are. And I haven't killed anybody yet. (laughs) So, (laughs) there's hope. You know, this is not such a massive step to take. So, what was it about her that inspired you the most? Well, when we were doing our training, we had to write uh, individual autobiographies and I was fortunate enough to have been given the opportunity to read hers. And in her autobiography, she described herself as having been a born survivor 
and spoke about the first 48 hours of her life, having to fight for her life. Talked a little bit also to to people about the neglect she faced um, uh, from from a very young age. And I just loved her honesty, the fact that she could just come out and say, look, this is this is me, this is who I am, this is what I bring to my role. Mm. You said you said she came from a working class background, which you said she was massively proud of. Mm. Yeah, she was really proud of being um, someone from a working class background. And when we were doing our family therapy training, um, two of the trainers who kind of were pretty much what one might call white privilege was delivering um, on the ethnicity and the, the, the lack of, of race and um, representation within the NHS and kind of made half of the people within the room uh, feel that they should feel very privileged for being white. And my friend, uh, Kerry, she stood up and she said, listen, um, I may be privileged for being white, but actually from the background that I come from, you know, I'm no different to one of my best friends, Alice, who um, came over as an immigrant from Africa. You know, we share the same struggles in a lot of ways. Please don't make this issue be about race. It's about um, being disenfranchised, actually. Mm. And um, lots of people on the day as well spoke about um, the mental health being something that's invisible and that's something that's it, it doesn't choose on um, sort of class, colour. Um, it affects all of us as well. So that's massive in, in everyone to sort of sit back and say, look, this can affect everyone, no matter circumstance, situation, financial situation as well. So big up to Kerry for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you spoke about at the start, um, there were two motivations for organising this event. Um, you spoke about one of them. Can you tell us th- which were the other one it was as well? Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, I got into this, I fell into this work. I, I kind of believe I was called into this work, work from my own experiences as well. Um, you know, I was someone that also entered the NHS and trained because of my own lived experiences. Um, you know, there was a you as my brother will know that we grew up in you know there was a lot of of trauma within our life and particularly in my younger years um mum had us at quite a relatively young age and there had been abuse in her life there had been abuse in my life and I was just this year I was really taken back at actually the era that I grew up in and the fact that women were speaking up now, that men were speaking up now, that in this era there was so much abuse, there were so many things that was happening to people that they had to keep quiet. And my motivation came from looking at my two nieces and thinking, I don't want them to have to keep quiet. And my motivation come from the fact that I had to fight to regain the custody of my son that should have never left my care. Why should I stop? You know, why should I be the one to be silenced? You know, how can I work with my patients and and tell them to speak their truth and not speak mine? Mm. Where do you think a lot of the um, 
sort of silences from from people stems from i know on the day on the event there was a lot of people speaking open and honestly now um about their stories and their truths and that's something that would have taken like loads of people on the day years to sort of overcome from but what what do you think is one of the main causes of people to sort of you know stay silent or not sort of find guidance within others um and and trying and get that help to eventually speak out as well uh we 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 heard so many people in the conference say you know let's not call it the s word because it's discrimination but mm. it is still society's stigma it's the stigma that lives in the families and also it's the belief you know yeah. if you're not believed if you come out and say look these things happen to me you know if your family don't believe you if your society don't believe you, if your schools don't believe you, if your workplace don't believe you, you begin to not believe yourself, but you be also begin to blame yourself. Mm. So it's an identity thing, I think. Yeah. Well, we heard from uh, one of your guests, um, Afrin, I think it was, who um, spoke about her struggles with um, her Bangladesh family um, mm. and all the struggles she had to overcome with um, finding her own path um, from a relationship point of view, a religion point of view. Um, and again, like you said, in terms of people not necessarily believing you, that, um, again, don't want to use the S word stigma, but that stigma, um, it, it takes its toll on people to sort of almost want to come out and uh, or even make a decision in Afrin's case that... Uh, Am, am I doing the right thing? Is is this something that's going to affect my brothers and sisters and my family dynamic and the breakup of that? So I think there's a lot around that as well. Mm. Um, for someone who has obviously gone through things themselves, do you feel like people on the day of the conference managed to take different um, aspects of um, people's stories and sort of use that to then go and inform others because we heard from lots of different people on the day about lots of different types of trauma and stories and um and things that they're doing to help others as well yeah and i think one of the f you know i hope anyway one of the objectives that people did take away is you know what is traumatizing to one person may not be traumatizing to another person and in actual fact what might appear to be traumatizing as an event may not be traumatizing to the person at the time. Mm. It could be 10 years down the line, 10 days down the line, you know, 10 months down the line that you never really know. There's no kind of indication when trauma will come and rear its, you know, ugly face. Yeah. Well, I said that to you the other day, didn't I? We, um, there was an event that happened to us uh, yeah. when we was younger. Um, when I was swimming, um, I jumped in to, well, looking back now, it wasn't the, the nicest thing to be on the receiving end of, but I, I jumped into what you could call it, like a canal, I guess. Mm. Um, and you pretty much jumped in and, and helped try and save me. And there was an adult there who, who wouldn't, and you had to sort of take the reins and jump in and, and try and save me. And you know, you then start to get sucked under and I then, um, you know, obviously was gasping and 
and some stranger came in and pretty much saved both of us Jumped and you saved me yeah um but i said to you i'd, I'd never thought of that since and mm. i've been swimming countless times um i've been you know um scuba diving been on countless trips with mates where you've jumped in and it's never even registered but the other day when i went swimming and was trying to swim for a long period of time and just underwater there was that sort of flashback of something that happened in my childhood and then having dreams of that Mm. whereas like you said it's difficult how trauma can sort of resurface after years there's something i'd never thought of and this one time going to a local swimming pool it it raised its head so um talking about that trauma what would you say if people are then having these sort of flashbacks and things like that what's what sort of steps that they could take to um sort of deal with the trauma but at the same time um recognize it as something that they can progress with as a as opposed to like a burden in that sense yeah um I think you raised a really important point because um, dialogue, talking, Mm. luckily, I mean, we don't really, because there's been a big age difference between you and although that we come from the same family, we don't often have the same experiences. Mm. Your life has took you one path and mine has taken me mine, but being able to share those things and I think like a lot of people suffer with flashbacks or they'll have nightmares or they'll feel like immense panic or they'll feel like, is this for real? Am I having a heart attack? I can't breathe. Mm. You can probably hear the way I'm talking because I've got this mic so close to me and I've had an experience where someone has, you know, literally put their hands over me. Mm. I feel very triggered just in this, you know, this situation. Yeah. But being able to talk about things like that can help just reduce your anxiety to that situation. Mm. So I think it's really important. And leading on from what you said, uh, Shane, our, our brother was there and he had a different memory again. Yeah. So it was weird because he carried his memory, which was he could just remember screaming because he thought what he was witnessing, he was going to lose his brother and his sister. Mm. Our memories of being in that water and I remember very, I remember feeling that you were going to die or I was going to die. But, I, you know, we would, we just, there was no, um, when you're in situations like that, there's no time to think. Yeah, it was very instinctive, I guess, from your part to, to jump in, jump in and but, save my life. But actually, we're forgetting that there was an, it wasn't like you took a, a walk near a canal and decided to mm. jump in because you used to be quite an impulsive child. <laughs> yeah. But actually, we were told to jump over this yeah. um, by wash or whatever you call it, this this part of the canal by an adult. Mm. And then that adult wasn't actually responsible enough to do anything about that situation. So I also think as a society for a young child to kind of try to stand up to an adult and say why would you allow that to happen that's a big pressure too you know you wouldn't Mm. necessarily say that so it never got spoken about again so it was easy for you to not have to process that yeah you know also as well I was speaking to one of the guests um from the conference about this same thing and I said to her I was like when we were younger I felt like we were very close and we were quite close and I don't know if it was that event as such 
that um, obviously you jumping in and saving my life and the stranger as well, thank God, sort of saved both of our lives as well. Um, but that brought us together. I don't know if that, you know, if it makes yeah. sense from a, a perspective of almost like, you know, you've got my back and I don't know. I felt like when we were younger, we were, you know, very close. Mm. Um, not like we've sort of created distance, but when we were younger, there was that sort of bond. Um, and I don't, yeah, again, talk about um how that may have sort of i don't know arose from that certain situation mm. do you find that that happens with you know um friends family members if they're going through certain things that that brings them closer together or yeah i mean we've only got to look at you know we held this event in the royal free hospital and there was a massive disaster that day mm. And there were lots of things happening to people who have trauma histories that are very triggering. But for them to get through that uncertainty, they come together. And if you are lucky enough to both witness an experience or go through an experience together, I do believe from from what I've been through, it does make you closer. Hmm. Um it it's really hard to say if that's like that for everyone because not everybody experiences trauma in the same way. Yeah. So I may not have spoke about that with you all those years down the line because I didn't want you to be re-traumatised by an yeah. event. So it's waiting for an invitation to come to be able to say, yeah, you know, we, I still feel it. I know where yeah. you're at with it. That 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 does happen and also we do have the exact same birthday yeah how many years apart eight eight years apart (laughs) so yeah i always yeah ruin my sister's birthday as we have it on the same day (laughs) (laughs) um yeah also for for me it was very very empowering coming to an event um i know shane got there in the afternoon but was all female Mm. um the energy from the event as well was so so inspiring again from different stories that people told for me from my personal um, experience of the day I got a lot of sense of the guests that were there were definitely speaking about a community in terms Mm. of how that helps them as an individual um, with their trauma um, again with um, with mental illness can you sort of just elaborate how important um, community whether that be family friends um open dialogue work colleagues um can help a specific individual yeah um so social trilogue is a form of open dialogue uh but it's like more of a community form of open dialogue so the the open dialogue that i'm currently doing sort of on a nine to five level within the nhs is usually for patients and whatever they see as their network so it could be that someone might bring in their friends their partner their family but they don't have that sense of community Mm. and that community doesn't have that understanding of that person's experience so in a way there's still everything's happening behind closed doors and I guess what motivated me was that through some of the work that I do in the different environments I do it in I saw these people that had these wonderful testimonies that was trying to recover and 
from someone that studied recovery and social inclusion as a as as a platform of a person's own individual way of re- rehabilitation into society and going through that myself it was very very uh, isolating mm. and then i came across judith harman who um really really spoke to me and she speaks about recovery being relational and about the fact that you know hey we are we are relational creatures we're born into this earth with someone mm. you know so we like relationships and actually in order for someone to make i wouldn't say a full recovery but a fulfilling recovery they've got to have someone or something to recover for be it a cat you know be it a partner be it a child be it a community that accepts them so social trilogue for me was the way forward because i thought to myself these people need to be able to tell their truth and share their stories with a community of people that are being silenced yeah we're going to listen to um some feedback from one of one of the ladies at the event as well just now can you can you talk about what sort of motivates you to help others um i know you spoke about it um to the group today but can you sort of talk to the people that aren't here about what helps you personally um, to help others and, and where you get that motivation from as well? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think um, mainly because I have been through some things myself and um, I have seen how things have been not having people to speak to and not knowing where to turn, not knowing what to do, not knowing who to approach as well. So um, I think if I'm going through that, there's obviously hundreds, thousands of people who are similar to me who are going through those experiences as well. So it's important that we do have people to speak to, that we do know where we can go when we're um, having issues, when we're having difficulties. So that's one thing that motivates me to um, speak out and to also help other people as well. And also um, the fact that, you know, we're we just need to help each other there's things that i know that someone else doesn't know and just feeding off each other's experiences and being interdependent i think within our society as well um we've grown up in a in a place where everyone's been interdependent but we were made as interdependent beings so feeding off each other learning off each other is really important yeah so i mean it was such a privilege to have Vanessa as a guest speaker on the day I mean she's done so much for her community already 17 years old started her own charity um and she's trying to do a lot for the 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 young generation now uh one of the things that she spoke about that really really interested me was was her idea again of of this this idea of people being able to recover in a community of people and be understood by a community of people um so they're not left to feel like they're alienated now some people don't have the opportunity to do that and particularly in some of the environments that i'm working in so one of the things that we have done is looked at different types of trauma-informed uh practices that we can use to help people be able to have the opportunity to tell their story. One of the ways that we do that is through um, narrative forms of working, narrative therapy. 
And one form of that is something called the Tree of Life. Mm. Uh, we had a guest speaker, her name was Mordella, and she spoke very much about the Tree of Life. The Baobab tree. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Do you want to go into a bit more detail in terms of um, how she sort of put it across and, and what, you know, the way she sort of articulated the Tree of Life to uh, mm. mental health? Mm. Yeah, so she, she, she spoke about the, the way in which we are influenced a lot from the, the roots of the tree. And one of the things within on the day that was coming out a lot about the roots of the tree was this toxic masculinity and this lens that we see ourselves in like a patriarchal society. Um, one of the examples that we have from that, again, is um, looking at our, our, our black brothers, which are highly represented in PQ, so psychiatric intensive care units. Uh, and the level of restraint and also looking at the people restraining them. They're very much people that look like them representing their communities. So although we were there representing the women of the day, we were also able to look at, you know, this in a measure where we, we can see that this is a issue that's affecting everyone. It's just that the discriminatory struggles are very different. That being said, you know, we had speakers there where when people tried to make this about a colour issue, you know, people would stand up and say mental health is an invisible illness. It can affect anyone and we have to become a community. Mm. So, but a real community will will see that there are different representations within that community. And when I... um. In my first year of doing my training within Open Dialogue, as one of my papers, I uh, wrote a report called RIC, which was recognising inequalities and creating change. And it was a, a, a race paper because we didn't have the representation from the black community within uh, the NHS that we wanted from, from a lived experience platform. We weren't hearing from the guys that were being restrained and held down and drugged up. Uh, and I wanted to know why. So I spent a lot of time on PQ wards talking to people, but nobody really wanted that report to come out. So their voices mm. weren't heard. And I think this is where Tree of Life really touched me. Because when you do this work with people and they put down their story on a tree, it's just so beautiful, mm. you know? It's their first time of really having some sort of validation and someone believing them. Yeah. And I, I think from the day there was, um, again, a couple of speakers, Mordella spoke about it as well um, from a personal perspective. And you talk about um, being on the PQ wards and a lot of discrimination and even the discrimination coming from, you know, the, the what you would class as, you know, brothers and people of the same race um, sort of, forcefulness on those individuals do you think a lot of that also has to do with the backgrounds i know mordella spoke about it from you know a caribbean perspective where mm. a lot of sort of mental health um is almost sometimes discouraged and there's not even um i think mordella spoke saying they don't even have a an, a name for it um, mm. you know in the Caribbean community and then in the African community mm. it's sort of almost dismissed so do you feel like um, those guys that are representing the sort of 
the same race class and, and causing that harm. One, need further education. Um, and two, the, the people at sort of the higher levels that are putting them into that position need that education themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Because this was one of the things that when when you go and train in the roles of doing what we call treatment as usual roles and jobs, you know, I, I come into the system as, as a peer worker. I come into the system that was, you know, I was doing training for the organisation. I was working in a recovery college. And then when I wanted to get in and do clinical work, one of the things was put to me was, well, you have to, you know, you have to be trained in your restraint. It was very much uh, something that was considered to be a way of protecting me. And, <clears throat> you know, there's a painful part of my own life where I had a voluntary hospital admission. And that's just a separate story because, you know, there's a lot of um, coercion that happens that ends up making you you look like you're playing ball and you're being a compliant patient because you then get people telling you. The thing is, you learn to realise that if you don't be seen to be doing what people recommend, they will do it. They will do it anyway. And if they do it anyway, that has repercussions on your life. You know, so I was lucky in a way that I I was a compliant patient, you know, um, but it doesn't mean that the, the, the struggles isn't the same. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't experience the same thing when you're in that kind of environment, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's painful when you're asked to do something to someone that you've seen yourself be in a similar situation, you know, and I couldn't do it. And I think that's what motivated me to say, that's, you know, if that's what it's, if that's what it's going to take, maybe I, you know, maybe there's another way for me to be able to support and help people through their journey. And maybe it isn't just direct clinical work on a ward, you know, supporting someone, offering group, you know, um, alternatives and places to speak. Maybe it was something else. And that's what I did. Mm, well said. I think, um, I can't remember who it was on the conference, also said it's about trying to see people as people mm. rather than, um, you know, rather than someone with a tag in terms of, you know, a mental illness and, and start seeing people as people and treating people how you'd want to be treated with a bit of love, a bit mm. of empathy as well. And I think that's such a valid point. Um, you know, you may not directly know someone who has potentially suffered, but it doesn't mean that you can go around using, you know, your weight against mm. someone um, for whatever reasons you may have. Um, so I think that's a valid point as well. Can you um, just speak about the um, division between the peers um, within the NHS? Um, on the day of there is a clip of you speaking out, talking about speaking out as well. Mm. Um, yeah, can you just go into a little bit more detail? Yeah. Um, so without without sort of talking too much, because maybe we can play that clip. But yeah. 
uh, one of the things that I always realised was happening was that I was in a team of people and predominantly there wasn't many people that that related to me because you know I was in that team primarily to talk about I was an open book basically to to people within that team doctors within that team patients within that team talking about my life story but everybody else in my team that actually I I was in recovery for a lot of the stuff I'd gone through but there were people in my team that was off stick that was burnt out that had stuff going on in their homes you know that their children was going through and they didn't have a voice Mm -hmm. yeah and that was really difficult but then it also caused a lot of conflict yeah. You know, because they thought, you know, I get to talk about, you know, lucky me, I get to talk about everything. But actually, I'm on a band, you know, at that time I was on a band for a band for it within the NHS. There's no amount of money, you know, that can make you, you know, when people start to make you think that you're selling your soul, because when you're talking about your story and you're getting paid for it, they make you feel like you're selling your soul and... That's why I said I never come into the NHS to give up a highly profiled job that I had to work at a very low band to sell my soul. It was a calling. It was something, something had to be done. I was there for a reason that I couldn't describe. So that's why you hear that in the clip that you're going to play. Yeah, let's play that clip just now. How many of us are on antidepressants? Stand up. You would be shocked if I told you how many people stand up. And what I say to them is, peers come with threats and opportunities. When I was recruited as a peer into the NHS Trust, I was paid to speak up. You're paid to shut up, right? But it's the truth. So how are we going to make this change if the system is still facilitating that you've got to be quiet and it's all right for people like us, or maybe not, depending on how you define yourself, to speak out? I felt there was a lot of tension in the room um, with them and us. Where does that come from? Well, Mirabai talks about an Only Us campaign and she was talking about on the day us needing to be really careful that if we're if we're not careful in in the way that we we speak about our experiences of what we see, that the progression that we've made in terms of peers within the NHS could be lost because there are members of staff that aren't speaking out and there are members of staff that if they did speak out could get struck off. And she was namely talking about doctors and nurses and social workers and and I kind of said, yeah, but what about STR workers, support time recovery workers, peer support workers, you know? What about these people, you know? <laughs> how comes it's all right for, for one lot of people to to be seen that they can't be treating people but another lot of people to be carrying that burden Uh, and one of the things that come up after that was that one of the women in the audience was asking 
listen, I've got 10 minutes on Tuesday to go to my doctor and tell my doctor about my symptoms. How do I do this? And that brought us up to the subject of training and particular not only in mental health, but in certain areas of mental health, trauma being one of them and some of the symptoms. And how does that, you know, woman go to her GP surgery when she knows she's only got 10 minutes and and explain and express herself and the symptoms that she's having and feel that she's being believed, being understood um, getting the help and support that she needs. Uh, and this is one of the things that we said, there is a lack of training in GP surgeries, um, how, how preventative measures can help people that are going through, you know, certain mental health problems, illnesses, distress, you know, whatever people want to call it. We talk about nurses, um, you know, one of the nurses there said you get three hours training in personality disorder. What does that word even mean? You know, we heard a lot about PD on the day. But, you know, so I, you know, I was halfway, three, three, four years ago, halfway into writing a book called Drive-By Psychiatry. And that's what I see has happened. Because the same way people are sat saying there's an M... Epi um, ep epidemic epidemic yeah within knife crime and and stuff like that i see that within the health system i see that within mental health like now people are talking about it now people are coming out it's like the health service can't cope with it so they're saying to people oh you're not really ill you're stressed or you're this or you're that and they're minimi minimalizing what people are going through and it's quite painful to see mm. and on the day as well, a lot a lot of people spoke about um, being sort of misdiagnosed um, as well, and the fact that when they do go to their GP, um, they're not necessarily listening to them. All they are doing is when they are, you know, talking about their symptoms, all their doctors then doing is typing in and understanding right this sort of prescription that I'm then gonna pie you off within the next five or six minutes. It mm. wasn't a case of okay. Um, I've understood these types of symptoms from what you're telling me. Maybe we can um, prescribe, like you spoke about with Alex, and maybe we'll touch on it in a minute, about the yoga or um, the holistical side of stuff rather than just say, okay, you've told me um, we're looking at uh, this. I'm going to prescribe you this. Try this for six weeks. Come back in six weeks and tell me how you get on, that type of thing. So I think there's a lot like you're speaking about in terms of training and education that these doctors need to go on. Yeah, and, you know, people say to me, why aren't you out there promoting yourself? Why aren't you out there speaking louder? You know, there is, there's so much, there's so much money that goes into a pharmaceutical uh, company, hmm. you know, different pharmaceutical companies where people are, the cheapest way to treat people is to, to give them pills. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, like, open dialogue, which which we're, we're running a research trial of, you know, people are, are looked upon as, this is too much of an expensive service. How can you be spending two, three hours a day, three or four, sometimes clinicians at a time, with one patient and their families? Well, actually, you know, if you go in on the early onset, 
as a community and a collective of people and really help that person, then we know, you know, we see from other um, ways from around the world, particularly Scandinavia, that actually the network, the community ends up teaching itself how to manage in times of crisis. So you're putting in this stuff early, but actually people are managing for longer. So it does make sense. And actually, you're not just working with the person at the centre of concern. You're working with their family because their family are also affected by this situation. Mm. Or if they're not directly affected, they may you know, soon come into um, contact with friends, uh, family members, other family members and friends that may potentially come on to be affected in the long run as well. So like you're saying, if you can start these types of initiatives early, mm. in the long run it's going to help also financially as well which surely makes sense in the longer run um just wanted to speak about as well um in terms of um the patient experience Mm. um we heard from is it taryn on the day yeah Yeah, taryn on the day um and she spoke about um a lot with um open dialogue and social trialogue from from um the patient within that setup is that do you find that that's a bit more of a um comfortable setup rather than other things they might be used to in going through yeah i mean the the research trial is open dialogue versus treatment as usual mm. So we we class that as like TAU in the NHS. So treatment as usual is what a, a, a patient would normally get. Mm. Um, open dialogue is is something that has been tried and tested in other parts of the world. And some people might say it's a consumer-based model. Mm. Um, so there is concerns about it really being able to develop and work within the NHS. But it is needs adapted. Um, I've worked within this, you know, um, remit of work now for a number of years. And I've seen, you know, I've seen lots of things happen to lots of different people. Uh, I've, I've, I've worked with one chap who, a couple of chaps within this model who have been on, on a ward. But you might remember Lucretia. Mm, yeah. So Lucretia is one of my clients that receives open dialogue that I work with, uh, with with a colleague over in East London. And, you know, there's so many different, um, you know, if you'd have met Lucretia last year, you know, she's she's such a different person from the person I met. So for me, I have... Um, I have a lot of faith in open dialogue. Mm. Yeah. Well, she's for the people that weren't there. She was very, very insp- her story was very inspirational, and her as a person, um, the energy as well she gave off. I think to the whole audience on the day. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. Was just fantastic, and you can see her sense of willingness to help others as well. And for that, um, on its own, for what you guys are doing, is something that positive in a sense as well um just going on about you speak about the research side of stuff i know on the day there was a lady who um spoke in the audience about 
um, we keep going back to research, research, research. Mm. How can we get away from, okay, we, there needs to be another study on this or we need to research this before we can mm. progress things forwards. What's your sort of view on that, those sides of things within the NHS as well and outside of, mm. of the NHS? Yeah, because I think that the question was directly put about the Women's Task Force report, which is like the mental health report that come out, and they're really, really pushing for gender-based trauma-informed care approaches to to working within the community and with working within the NHS. Um, it's really, really difficult because... I think one of the people in the audience said, come on, we've got the findings out there. We mm. know they exist. They're just underground because they're not an RCT, which is like a randomised controlled trial or study or, you know, people don't don't listen to them. They don't have to put them in place, you know. Uh, and that can be quite difficult. But I think there are certain, um, for for example, the, the approach that Alex uses that works with clients the trauma sensitive yoga we we know the difference that that has and we know that there's a lot of psychiatrists a lot of psychologists there's a lot of people that have been involved in that work and the survivors that have have had a major impact in in putting that work forward so that we can work with with other other victims and survivors to be able to kind of get get a different form uh, an alternative form of treatment you know um and it's just not readily available within the nhs which is so so sad can you just for those that are listening in um that might not know can you just talk a little bit about um trauma um sensitive yoga and how that sort of um may be different to you know the standard types of yoga that people may be accustomed to yeah uh well trauma sensitive yoga is um all about kind of working it's like two people in a room trying to have a body that's as simple as it goes mm. um I, I don't know maybe alex would describe it different but um it it's about an invitation to be able to to notice the different sensations within the body, different things happening or not. It's about feeling that you're you're able to to have an experience, but you're not alone in that experience. Uh, I can talk about that firsthand because I I'd heard a lot about this this way of training. And the last kind of major event that happened within my life had shut down parts of my body for a number of years. And when I was told about, you know, this way of work, I'd already been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And this was like my latest diagnosis. I'd had lots of diagnoses earlier in my life. But I was 34, 35 years old and I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and I thought, this don't, this, this can't, the, the, what they're saying isn't sort of right. Because I had this, there was cert a certain part of my body that I couldn't feel. 
like I literally couldn't feel there was nothing left there was and it was like the lower part of my torso the lower part of my body that went down into my groin area and my thighs area I just couldn't feel anything there you know even intimately there was nothing there and so when I went on this I was very skeptical when I went on this training that Alex was offering and um it was shocking it was shocking because it was a five-day training by day four I had so many different emotions going on about what I was beginning to feel there were sensations that were coming back to me that I hadn't felt for a number of years um, and it was making me visit, you know, revisit a space where I didn't feel that very great about myself. But I was feeling them. Mm. So on one hand, it was like I'd accepted for a long time that the only way to survive was not to feel. But then also to try to reconnect with a part of myself uh, and to be able to give myself wholly to other people, I needed to connect with these areas of my body mm. and that's what um happened on that training and it just changed my life there's not many there's not many interventions that i would literally say i could actually leave the nhs leave all of this and go to boston do the training and you know do this kind of work with people myself but i was highly considering this because this was a transformation for me. No medication, mm. no therapy, no talking. This was just about two people being in a room, trying to have a relationship with their body. Mm. And you, I guess you would highly recommend that to people listening in um, that might be thinking, I, I need to try or want to try something different to what I've been previously trying. I guess that would... Yeah, I had major, like, people had told me about yoga before. And, you know, I, I, I'm a size 16 woman <laughs> where when I went to a yoga studio, there was, you know, very lovely, light looking women. And when I went, met Alex and we kind of, you know, we connected and we did this training together, I was in front of a big fat Buddha in a Buddhist center. And I was like, oh, my God. This is what yoga's <laughs> about. Anyone can do yoga, but but actually on a not on a funny level. You know, with yoga you have to be very careful because you know the way your instructor talks about the things you've got to do. So might use the word pose, bend, open your legs. And if you're not doing a certain position the right way, they will try to fix your body. Okay, so whose body is that? Mm. You know, and in trauma sensitive yoga, your body's your body. No one's going to touch it. Mm. No one can touch your body. If, if if you want to do something with your body, it's your choice to do it. So it's a very, very different form of yoga. So you feel from the personal perspective is that you're in a safe, a sort of a safe environment where you can, again, like you spoke about, reconnect internally with yourself, but mm -hmm. also at the same time develop that, those principles to progress you moving forward absolutely and strengthen your body your breathing your mind your resilience to get back out there you're just two people in a room trying to have a relationship with your body but you're not alone mm. yeah brilliant
So you've spoken about social trialogue being a form of open dialogue. What actually is open dialogue? Okay, so um, open dialogue is uh, really just having a, you know, being all together within a network and trying to be present and particularly within the moment of what's going on for somebody um, and hearing their story for, for what it means to them. Uh, in, in the NHS, we're, we're actually doing something called peer-supported open dialogue and we use a lot of uh, mindfulness practice to help us be able to tolerate uncertainty because it's very, you know, as you can imagine, I mean, just put yourself in the situation where perhaps, you know, something happens to you and you end up coming into contact with mental health services because of what's happened to you. And the usual way of working might be that, you know, you might be seen by a community recovery team or you might have a home treatment team. You know, the way that open dialogue works is that actually from once you've been referred to us, we try within sort of 24 hours to kind of respond to you. So it might be that we have a conversation with you and your family. We come to your home. Uh, we ask you, what was the history? So what brought us there? And there's a number of us within the room. When I say us, we are uh, therapists or practitioners, whatever people prefer to be called, uh, as opposed to professionals. Uh, we leave our titles at the door. And one of the key uh, elements of our role is that within our time within the network, you and your family may bring certain things up and have a conversation about what's going on. But we try to hear all the voices in the room and we try to give all the voices in the room the chance to be heard by everyone. So... Let's just say you and your family are talking uh, and we hear something that we feel that maybe you or someone said that nobody else seems to have heard. So we might we might bring that out. We might say something. We might repeat what's been said or we might say, actually, we want to just have a reflection amongst each other. And instead of leaving your house and us all going back to our team, and talking about what we had encountered, we will talk about it to you in your face. So you know me being your sister, this mm. is kind of the ideal kind yeah. of job for me yeah. because I'm a very, I believe very much in openness and honesty. Yeah. And, and, and the only way we can learn is from learning from each other, but you have to be open to people. So it's really, really good when we can let the person we're working with know that actually we may hear that no one's hearing them. Yeah. But it's equally good if we can let mum know who's probably gone through this time and time again and is tired, that we hear that she's tired. Mm. So it's not about taking sides and it's not about coming out with an agenda or talking about the clients without them. In fact, we have nothing about them without them. Mm. Uh, we we have enough in about them without them kind of forefront of our agenda 
So everything that we say in the room, we say, you know, to try to help steer the network. Uh, it's based on like a family therapy way of working. Um, and and it, it seems to work wonders. Like a lot of people sit and say, well, what about risk? You know, what about this? What about that? Because it's a new way of working. But it, it, it does work. And I've seen it work, you know, with quite horrific, um, you know, cases that have been brought that have, ha you know, had a lot of stuff that's happened within families where things, you know, once you work with this family and you start to begin to get to the root cause of what's going on, you know, you quite, you seem to find a way of understanding, quite frankly, why someone within that family is going through some sort of mental health breakdown or something mm. that's happening. Because usually there is always a root cause, a little bit like our tree. So, mm. yeah. Brilliant. We're just going to play a clip from um, the event. Uh, one of the guests and guest speakers speaking about um, open dialogue. Okay. One of the things that I like about the open dialogue and how it's stripped away the differences, and it was the first time I had the courage after 15 years working in the NHS to stand up as a peer, so I was, it took me a long time, but um, was that, you know, the psychiatrists, we, we, we were, without our labels, we were all equal in that training, and they, you couldn't tell who was who. We've all been had that lived experience and suffering, and some of the stories are very moving, and it's great to connect to, to them as individuals and take those hats off and see people. And I was curious what you said about something about it being innate. Yeah, the guy just wanted to actually express himself, and, and the psychiatrist, and this is in the network, we kept on saying how scared she was and that she wouldn't come to the hospital to see him because he scared her so much and that she wanted him to go on medication. And I was saying that, Medication wasn't the only way forward. There were other things that we could try, you know, mindfulness, becoming aware, yoga, those sorts of things. Um, and she sat there and she was going, you're the same age as my son. I'm really, I'm trying to bring his mum in at, at the same, and this was an open dialogue network meeting. And, um, and, the, and the CPN that was there, that was all, actually agreed with her. And then at the end of it, we had to like reflect and I said what I thought and I was, odd one out sort of thing and it was, it was quite uncomfortable and I actually wrote up about it on my um, open dialogue we had to do our like last essay and I said it can be quite uncomfortable if there's not that trust within the open dialogue team and it, and it does come up and I didn't join the service in the end so there's some brilliant people in open dialogue but from my experience I've found that it's um, there's still there's still like a cultural thing still in it, do you know what I mean? Which I didn't think that actually would be. Taryn there speaks about um, open dialogue not necessarily working um, when the trust isn't there mm. um, and the hierarchy um, as well. What, um, what would your response to that be? Yeah, my response is that I can totally empathise with what Taryn's saying. Like, mm. although, I, although I'm a major massive believer in open dialogue and you know i'm i'm also very aware that in certain parts of the country it's not actually working um you know how it might be seen to be working in scandinavia and other parts of the world so people are saying well this is not pure open dialogue this is diluted open dialogue 
one thing I'll say is it's needs adapted. Um, we're doing peer supported open dialogue. So what Taryn says about power uh, and hierarchy is a massive thing for me. I would say that open dialogue as an approach is a flattening of hierarchy. It's not a removal of hierarchy because there's lots of hierarchy still in place. You know, the fact that if someone is still seem to be quite acutely unwell, we might still ask for a psychiatrist mm. shows how much a hierarchy still sits within open dialogue. Yeah. Um, but but open dialogue for me and and social trialogue, the 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 good thing about these these approaches is it gives us a chance to bring in other people to the network mm. uh, and some of the things that I feel that we should be doing is having trilogues with police, you know, GPs, you know, other people uh, to help them become much more trauma-informed. Uh, I also believe that it's also important to, to kind of hear their voices, you know. There is something called vicarious trauma, so when you're witnessing and witnessing and witnessing and witnessing trauma on a daily basis, and this happens when you're a member of the Blue Light Services a lot, mm. you know, you're more likely or prone to be, to to become traumatized or suffer with PTSD or other forms of, you know, trauma. So I do feel that the open dialogue approach does give avenues for us to much wider avenues actually for us to be a proactive as a community and come together and say you know this isn't just a health issue or a, a police issue mm. or a community issue, issue alone it's an issue for us as a society to come together mm. to make a bit of a difference treatment as usual don't give you that no and you you speak about like the hierarchy and and the police being um trained as well um but also them maybe um being affected um and also being um some people on the front line that are greatly affected to that how do you think that sort of comes full circle with the open dialogue because do you think there's there will be a lot of issues with um particular people within those services then coming out and openly saying look I've you know suffered from this um do you feel like that there would be an issue because there, if people was um allowed to come out and say you know I've su I've suffered or I've seen this or I'm going through this that maybe jobs could be affected from their personal perspective or um you know unions or other things then coming into play that might affect their positions absolutely i mean um one of the biggest things about peer supported open dialogue for me is actually not about me coming out in a network mm. you know although it is powerful it's much more powerful for me to help to teach my colleagues on a daily basis to be able to feel that they can they can share and disclose a part of their life that could be that could help a person that is in distress. Mm. So I do totally get it. It's something that they haven't been trained to do. 
you know, they've been trained to not feel, to not connect. And they have to find a way to learn to undo, which is a major part of the training that we do within open dialogue. But, you know, it's about being human and not being professional. You have to find a way to untrain the fact that you're a professional. You're just a human being in the room, a bit like in my, you know, the yoga studio is two people trying to have a body. So when you start to 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 realize you're just a person in a network trying to have a dialogue makes you feel i guess you lose a lot of power as mm. well yeah because you're almost giving up um sort of the sense of security and uh again perception of others mm. um and that come up i think alex spoke about um our perception of ourselves and and others um and also the fear element within the perception as well um can you just speak about as well from a personal um side of things um how you sort of had to overcome that perception of you know yourself others um within your profession and personal life as well Mm. vanessa spoke really well about imposter syndrome Mm. and this idea of you know do I really have a right to do this job? Do I really have a this? Do I, do, you know, do I really have a right to have a presence? And I, that was something I could massively connect with because, you know, for maybe nearly coming on 11 years, I've worked within the NHS. And although I studied nearly three years of a degree before becoming really unwell and couldn't finish it, um I managed to use what I'd learnt from my degree and my work experience and my lived experience to get me the jobs that I'd got and to get me to progress on to do further training at a postgraduate level. But I really found within the last maybe year of my career, particularly from my managers, not all, but a couple of my line managers, they've been very much about Charmaine, like we need to find, you know, we know that you've always wanted to do your dance movement therapy or that you've always wanted to go into drama therapy. They know I'm a very creative person and they're really pushing me forward through to the academia area of that. Mm -hmm. Now that was a massive trigger for me because When I went back to do my training, you know, by the time I was ready to to go back to studying again, I wanted to transfer the credits that I had. But because so much time had passed, I couldn't transfer those credits. Mm. And so I went on and said, you know what, I'll do the same work. And if it means that other people come out with a postgrad or other people come out with a this and a that, as long as I know I've done the same work, yeah. then you know what? I don't need the certificate, you know. But for my managers and people that I thought had accepted that because I'd accepted that for myself, to then be saying to me, look, in order to progress your pathway in the NHS, you're nothing without a certificate. It's madness, isn't it? It's crazy. And, you know, I was sitting there trying to say to her, listen, 
if you were going for a dinner, yeah, say if it was like, I don't know, a restaurant you've never been before, and you were sat there and you were looking at something to try to eat, you know, would you want someone to tell you who had tried that food before and give that you their opinion of the food? Or do you want someone that knew how to put the recipe together but had never ate it? And she was like, well, I don't understand your point. And I'm saying my point is, I'm, <laughs> I've come to this team, I'm an assistant psychologist in this team because I've tried the food. Mm. <laughs> I've tried the pills. I've been behind the door. You know, I, I've worked with other people that have been there, but I've been there too. And I don't know how much more you want from me, you know. I still live with a mental health illness. I've got an enduring mental health condition that I hope that, you know, touch wood at the moment I'm in remission of, but it can come back any time. Mm. So I'm very aware of that. And so when people forget those things, it's very hurtful. And I feel that I'm quite a resilient person. So I do worry about other peers yeah. that might come in to this kind of workforce and feel very pressured to go and take on like a treatment as usual job. Like, you know, if you choose to be a peer, you know, it's because you want to be a peer. If I wanted to be a doctor, I'd be a doctor. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm, for sure. And obviously you spoke about um, yourself still currently going through, um, you know, stuff personally do you feel like a lot of people um when they first start out um and first have the understanding or the misdiagnosis um that they may have uh ptsd anxiety depression clinical depression um do you feel like there's a lot from people that want to try and get rid um of all of those things rather than sort of manage um what they're going through as opposed to um, you know, it, there's a lot of people that everything's a hundred mile an hour, or they just want to get rid of the next thing as quickly as possible, rather than sort of in accepting it and finding, you know, a root cause or going back to that trauma, and and sort of dealing with it from that perspective. Do you think do you do you get that a lot, or um, just sort of speak about those experiences and even you personally as well? Yeah, and I think it's a different. Uh, stages for people as well because if you first come into the system and you don't know what's happening to you and you can't explain why you normally want to answer so if a doctor or a nurse or anyone tells you well there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong then you start to think it must be me yeah and I can only speak from the people I've worked with and myself but then when you do get a diagnosis it does feel quite liberating to begin with because you think, okay, so there's something now that I have that other people have that I can connect with. I'm not alone. But then when you when you start being put into um, services to help treat the symptoms of your condition, um, you're clustered. So... When you start looking uh, and working with people, you start thinking, I haven't got nothing in common 
you know, with certain people in this room. Mm. And and I did I did 18 months of DBT because I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in my 20s. The first time I did it, I stopped it because the type of people in the room, um, I, I, there was no way that I, I was ready to work on my stuff, but I felt very angry that I was put in a room with certain people that I had felt that I could not relate to in, in any way, shape or form. Um, so fast forward a number of years later, and then I was delivering groups in these kind of settings, mm. doing this kind of stuff to try to help the women, mostly women, there were yeah. men too, and there were boys too. But I could really know that sense when they were sort of saying, why am I put with these people? I, like, I'm not like these people. I really felt that and understood where they were coming from with that. So I think to begin with, it can feel quite, you know, refreshing. Oh, yeah, I've got a diagnosis. There's something wrong with me now. Mm. But then that diagnosis can also not go in your favour. So, for example, when I was diagnosed with that, in, you know, the first time I was diagnosed with that, I was diagnosed with that when I was pregnant. Social services was on my back. Mm. You know, they... They were on my back because the year or so before that, um, I had to leave Colchester uh, because of something that happened to me and my son didn't come with me and I'd spent two weeks in a hospital trying to get myself better. Mm. I didn't have no family come visit me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I, I went through that struggle on my own, but in order to get me through that struggle... I knew I had to come back and get my son, but then I always had these people on my back. So the best way to get them off my back is to get myself in a relationship. And I got myself into a very quick relationship, ended up pregnant again. And unfortunately the person that I married was abusive to me. Mm. Now, when it comes to them saying, uh, me trying to leave and get help to leave, that person was telling them, She's mad, she's this, she's that, she's done this, she's done that. And there were things that I did, you know, um, in my past. That's no lie. And I told that person because that's the man that was marrying me all about what I did to survive. But to have that used against you and then to have the social services take that person's side kept me in that marriage that was unhealthy for me and my children and then it come to a stage where because they wasn't listening to me things got so bad that he held us hostage one night and when I finally called the police the next day when he was asleep they come in and they arrested him that was our way of getting out I was having myself in hospital. I was being treated for the injuries. And I had a social worker tell me and my son, my younger son at the time, don't worry, you and your mum are going to go. You're going to be in a nice refuge, but it's a beautiful place. There's horses, there's this, there's that. You're going to be a family. We're going to help you. When we come out of the police, uh, when I come out of the hospital, the police come and saw me and was asking me all these different questions about my hus ex-husband. 
And because I couldn't tell them anything, because I knew that that would put my safety at risk, the next day I was on the phone to my mum and I was telling her, look, the, 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 the social are telling me I've got a hand over my, be- you know, my younger son. Mm. And he was four months old at the time. And like my mum was on the phone because I didn't want to do that on my own. But she heard the social workers mm. and they wouldn't even touch my son. They made me hand my son to his auntie. Mm. And it took me three years to get him back. It took me to have to be strong, to have to not go back to that marriage, to have to find a way to record what that man and that family were doing to me and my my son at that time. There was a period at that time he wasn't even in the country. I would see him when he would come back from Turkey because he was in the care of his nan and she lived in Turkey. So there was lots of things that I missed out on, which anyone, I don't know how I got through it, but anyone with a mental health condition, I should have been in hospital, you Mm. know what I mean? Because of what had happened. But that just couldn't happen. So I understand when a lot of women with mental health problems say, I can't talk about my problems because of my children. Because it's a real reality for them. And I was the lucky one. You know, after three years, I managed to get my son back. It took a lot of work and determination, but I got him back. But I work with people every day. Their their children are gone. Mm. So this is a real life thing for a lot of women out there. Yeah. And again, I, I guess a lot of that will come down to training within the social services to mm. to spot as well what women are going through and also the handling of certain situations um better mm-hmm. um understanding of borderline personality disorder as well what does yeah. that mean i mean you heard from alex on the day you know even the word complex ptsd it, they're just people don't really understand people's histories this is people's histories that have had a lot of trauma in their life mm. probably in their childhood you know, I don't really speak about everything that happened in my life and my childhood because now I'm at a stage where I want to protect myself and my family. Yeah. But these people knew on record what I'd been through. They see they see the write-up from my GP from, you know. So this wasn't something that I had control of. So when we talk about diagnosis, there are some glamorous diagnoses out there. Mm. If you got diagnosed with anxiety disorder, when I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, people was like, okay, because they could really relate. Relate, yeah. But when you talk about things like anything to do with personality disorder, there's such a stigma. Mm. We're just going to hear a couple of clips from some of the audience members on the day. um, And then I'd like to sort of get your response as well. Um, yeah, a general interest in, um, so yeah, mental health, um, working in mental health at the moment as a social therapist um, and very interested in trauma-informed approaches. Um, had a quite intense experience working as a healthcare assistant on a psychiatric ward for women um, and was, yeah, just lots of things that we've said today really, but the, the medicalisation of distress and the you know, lack of space to really talk to people about what's happened to them um, and 
re-traumatising people by putting them in this environment without um, enough ears to listen to what they've been through. So yeah, from that experience, just feel very strongly that um, this kind of this kind of discussion is is really important. It's so interesting listening back and hearing those reflections. Uh, I think you know one of the things I heard about you know uh, there was a worry that people in the audience thought you know are we are we all really preaching to the converted. Um, being a social trilogue event, the whole the whole point is that you have different people within your community to represent your community. So the invitations that went out went out to different people in the community. It wouldn't have gone out to people that I already knew were converted. It went out to people that we were looking to say you know, come and meet these women, come and listen on International Women's Day, you know, to these women talk about what what is going on for them, what's happened for them, what they're working in, you know, and that the 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 people that I'm talking about that chose not to come and hear those testimonies were the people in power and the people that hold the money. So the CCGs, the cl- cl- um, Clinical Commissioning Group, that hold money that can decide how certain, you know, money is spent on projects out there are delivered, whether that be within the NHS or within primary care uh, or secondary care within the NHS and other people. And I mean, you know, we knew that Jackie Doyle, the health minister, was already involved in this. I didn't want to put that out. I'd wrote about, you know, I'd wrote about that earlier to Jackie and other people. It was a late response. Russell spoke about the fact that he'd already met her to talk about the research trial with her, you know, and the fact that she was a Tory minister. He didn't really have much hope. But all I can say, you know, she very much has taken on board to sort of say, okay, let's listen to what this woman's got to say. And the... You know, sh- you know, the opportunity to feedback to her and the voice I cannot feedback to her is the voice of the people that hold the power because they weren't there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to hear um, another clip as well from one of the guests from the day as well. Okay. Is there anything you've taken away that may not have necessarily had an understanding of before or yeah definitely gonna um going to look more into um the work that's being done to try and educate police around like the treatment of people of color in mental health services and treating people of color with more violence um than white people i think is something that i sort of was aware it was happening but hearing people's like direct experience today yeah that's really um yeah it's just appalling so found that very uh, yeah that stuck with me there was a a lot of response on the day to the role of the police and what they play what was your response to that um obviously there's a lot of people that have their own experiences of the police I remember one of the guests talking about her experiences being in the 1990s and then Mordella talking about actually she had 
the similar uh, a similar experience back in um last by like early last year and then another person saying that they had the exact uh sort of experience that this other woman was talking about namely being dragged out of their houses naked or half naked uh put in a cell having to be told by an ambulance service no this person can come in an ambulance and the thing i found really strange about this whole situation was the fact that women female police officers were were complicit in this type of behavior you know i heard people talk about particularly anyway from that conference that they had more compassion from a male police officer not every male um but that this was a reoccurring thing for female police officers now I don't know if this is because like what Alex was saying where sometimes you're scared of the people that you're treating and vice versa and there's something going on there but for me there's no justification when someone is sending you an invitation to a very safe space to come and learn more about the people that you are working with in a community you know and to not send any representation to that i think speaks loudly myself because you know if this is a situation where they want to change and they want to be able to be more you know involved in and feel more qualified in you know they could have come to this you know or event like this but I, I can't talk about what other things they've been invited to but people were invited to this event within those realms and they didn't show mm. and do you do you feel like they're um afraid of again the types of questions that they may get asked um or that may be put forward um, from previous experiences do you feel like or do you feel like they maybe use that as um, the deterrent to not turn up. I mean, did you even get a response to say, look, thank you for the invitation. Um, you know, w we currently have people working on, you know, these issues in another matter. Um, but in future, we, you know, may be able to get to other events. What, any response at all? Or? No response at all. None. Um, and I think, again, uh, that is part of the issue, isn't it? They're not, it there's not even a, an acceptance to be like, okay, there is something that we need clearly to sort of tackle. Let's at least send someone there to get better informed information that maybe we can then together keep progressing. And that's, that's such a shame. Mm. I mean, I can't say what their reasons were for not being involved in an event like this. But what I can say is from some of the feedback for the day, I will be knocking on their doors again. Mm. And I will be inviting them to listen to this podcast so that, you know, going forward, if we want to take some of this and make something of this, they can be involved but it's up to them to choose to, you know, be on board if they want to be, you know, regarded by this community of people that, you know, 
their their system have at times failed then they need to at least make the effort to show a representation because there was other people that hold them account that came that day mm. and they were also saying that they were shocked to hear the things that they heard that day but they'd been been hearing similar stories across the country yeah so something's happening you know for sure um and i just want to quickly touch on that um we we have um sort of a reflection clip in a second i'll play um and i think it, it sort of again going back to the whole idea that um you know they're not involved in any any shape or form or not directly involved with um anybody friends family members um loved ones that are um going through something themselves um i'm just going to play a clip of one of one of the reflections from um, one of the guests who thinks that um, a way how we can sort of get these people to come and sort of find a way that they can sort of listen as well. So I'm just going to play that clip. Yeah, no, I, I agree in, in terms of yeah, identifying with people as people who's like this, this stuff is in their lives as well. And although they occupy this position of power, I think when you're actually with, in a room with someone, the best way to try and engage them is, is not by setting up that opposition. Yeah, I guess maybe like taking the pressure off people, being like, you're, you're here representing, yeah. you know, you're as an MP, but we, we just want you to listen. As a person, as a and, and feel educated. An we we yeah. don't want you, you don't feel the need to like represent your party line mm -hmm. or whatever, just, Brilliant. yeah, I think absorbing it. I guess that was the, um, the final reflection, um, really. Um, I just want to know what's what's next for you um, going forwards. Yeah, so going forward, I want to, personally speaking, I want to do a collection of people's testimonies. Uh, I want to write a book of people's testimonies and put it out there somehow for people. Um, I'm also in the process of trying to set up joint action, which is obviously our social trilogue uh, community uh, way of bringing people together. Uh, and the aim is really about disenfranchised communities just coming together to become more proactive about transforming mental health services uh, and gender and diversity, really, through, you know, a community of dialogue between members. I guess the only thing I would say is that we want to expand the membership of those members to represent the whole of the community not just the disenfranchised element of the community. Um, yeah, and just to introduce them people to social trilogue really and the partnerships that, that can happen because I'm, I'm hoping that we create more opportunities uh, at getting better at looking after our community. Excellently put. I just want to say thank you very much for coming on, sharing the story um, and thank you very much for um let me be a part of your inspiring day and and the work that you and the guests um there um put out and we're just going to finish with a um an excellent um sort of close from Vanessa thank you very much thank you what i want to round off with is this quote which is an african proverb so it says if you want to go quickly go alone if you want to go far go together 
and essentially to me this is something that's really important because we can try and run this race separately but the only way that we are going to get to the top help each other make sure everyone receives the right support make sure everyone gets the right skills and tools and techniques in order to um, manage their mental health and well-being is by working together so thank just want to say thanks very much for listening in to another edition of the Harris Health and Mind podcast. Thanks for the guests and the guest speakers on the day. And thanks for Sham for putting on um, a fantastic event, which hopefully people on the day and people listening to the podcast can take away some new information um, and hopefully transcend that within their lives. Um, stay tuned for more episodes to follow. Peace.